Hey, this is Joseph Thompson. Thanks for listening to the Open Spaces podcast. Why don't you sit back, relax, and join me as we take a journey together into wide open spaces. Many years ago, my friend uh, Alex McManus opened my eyes to the reality that as Christ followers preaching the gospel, we're much like foreigners trying to speak a different language. Uh, For the most part, you can tell a foreigner from a native speaker by the distinct accent that sets us us apart from native speakers. And, And Alex opined that this makes us experiments in translation. I love the phrase. Experiments in translation, meaning that in interpreting the words of Scripture, which requires a cultural, colloquial, and context understanding, we don't always get it right. Uh, But so that, as I always say, we're playing on the same field, let's define a few words. First, let's define the word colloquial. Uh, It's an adjective that means it's used in ordinary or familiar conversation, not formal or literary. So colloquialisms are usually native to the culture in which they're being spoken. A great example of a colloquialism would be, he was up the creek without a paddle. Think about it. If you went into a village in Africa and said, up the creek without a paddle, once you'd explained what a creek is and what a paddle is, they would immediately assume that you were talking about someone who was in a canoe or a raft and had lost their oar. And so they were up the creek with no way of rowing back to safety. Well, that clearly is not what that colloquialism means. That colloquialism means he was in a very tough or difficult situation, up the creek without a paddle. It's a colloquialism. Um, So I said... Interpreting the words of scripture for us requires a cultural, colloquial, and context understanding. So here's a cultural example. Uh, The American accent is uniquely different from the English accent. In American English, for instance, the word crop is pronounced with a long O, while the English have a distinct and closed O, the, the way I'm pronouncing it, it's crop. Now, I'm notorious for my appalling American accent, and so in reading certain verses, I must be careful to say the right thing. For instance, in speaking about the harvest in regard to leading people into the kingdom of God, John records Jesus as saying the following. Taken from John chapter 4 and verses 35 and 36, he says, You have a saying, four more months and then the harvest. But I tell you, take a good look at the fields. The crops are now ripe and ready to be harvested. The one who reaps the harvest is being paid and gathers in the crops for eternal life. Now, we're not digging into the meaning of uh, that verse for today's purposes. I'm simply pointing out the word crops. You see, because the long O, if pronounced incorrectly by a non-native speaker can sound more like an A. For instance, a non-native speaker may hear the way Americans pronounce crop as crap, crap. (laughs) Unfortunately, you and I are familiar with the fact that there is a different word that is crap that's spelt with an A and not an O. And it conveys a completely different meaning. 
which undoubtedly alters the tenor of Jesus' conversation. So your accent makes all the difference, and that's a cultural example, accents. Now, I personally have lived this frustrating and sometimes embarrassing reality. When I first moved to America many years ago, and I think I've told this story uh, many times, so forgive me if you've heard it before, but I remember I was preaching with vim and vigor at a church, and I was preaching from the book of 2 Kings and chapter 5. It was the story of Naaman the leper. Naaman, who was a Syrian, and he was a representative of the king of Syria and was captain of the army of the king of Syria. Uh, the Bible says that it talks about all of these accolades and praises for Naaman and his greatness and his, uh, um, uh, his warrior-like qualities. And then it says, but Naaman was a leper. Now, as I preached, I was trying to emphasize this idea that no matter how great we all are, we all have a distinguishing thing in our lives that holds us back or that separates us from the qualities of greatness. And so the way I emphasized it was I kept saying, we all have a but in our lives. Some buts are bigger than others. And the congregation was rolling in laughter. And I couldn't for the life of me make sense of why they were laughing when I was preaching such a powerful message. Turns out that the word but in American English, B-U-T-T, connotes and conveys a completely different meaning. You see, the English don't use the word B-U-T-T. They use a different word. And so as I emphasized the word but continually, it felt to my listening American audience the humor and amusement of that word translated differently. We are experiments in translation. And culturally, when we miss it, we can oftentimes communicate something completely different from what we originally intended. The larger point here, my friends, is, is the fact that language is nuanced and it conveys different things to different people depending on so many factors. Accents, cultural understandings, colloquialisms, social upbringing, and a host of other factors all play into our understanding and interpretation of words. You see, over the course of human history, words have been manipulated, altered, and co-opted to mean different things. Take, for instance, the word gay. Gay no longer just means happy. And in fact, because context is king, depending on how you use the word, not only does it convey an entirely different meaning, it can be suggestive of something entirely different from its originally intended use. You see, I'm fairly confident that almost no one in America would use the word gay to convey the idea of being happy any longer because of the strong connotation of that word, meaning um, same-sex attracted. See, Brian McLaren has a theory that when our ancient ancestors developed the capacity for language, words became increasingly all-encompassing. He opines that words became not only our primary way of engaging with others socially, but they also became the tool by which we each conduct our own inner dialogue as we speak and have conversations with ourselves. So language became so powerful, both interpersonally and intrapersonally, that the web of words in our heads often felt more real to us than the web of life outside our heads. It's so true. It's why 
we begin to speak negative things to ourselves and begin to believe those things regardless of what the circumstances speak to the contrary. Essentially, language has become a tool that we use to describe reality, but it can also, by the same token, become a substitute for reality. One might, in fact, argue that language was the original form of virtual reality. But the scripture says it like this in Proverbs 18.21. Words kill. Words give life. They're either poison or fruit. You choose. So we get to determine with our words, death or life. Now Christianity evolved, among other things, as a language. A set of words pointing to a set of ideas. And this language, make no mistake about it, this language uh, that Christianity evolved was necessary to liberate people from another language. A language that ruled the world at the time, a language of empire and domination. Think about it. It was all empires that rose up and conquered others and ruled nations. So the language of conquering empires was a language of domination. So when Christianity evolved and it began to evolve in part as a language, this language shaped the inner architecture of generations of Christians, furnishing them with foundational terms like sin, Grace, salvation, things that were never before spoken of in the context of language. And these terms were woven together into stories. And the stories were woven together into a framing story, which is in itself another phenomenon of language. The ability to transmit stories from one generation to another using language. But let me be clear, I'm not talking about the Bible when I say the language of Christianity. I'm talking about the stories that each culture has woven around their narrative of Christianity. So these are the stories that shaped Christianity, whether from the language of Rome and Constantinople to the language of the Greeks to the language of African Christianity. For too many people, though, this old language that has been used to frame their stories isn't working anymore. Why? Because the words have been emptied of their substance. The gap between actual reality, and by actual reality, I mean what the scriptures actually say, and the current Christian linguistic is just too great. Which is why many of us who choose to stay Christian must deconstruct much of the conventional interpretations of the Christianity we inherited because the language does not match up with what we're reading in the scriptures, with the actual reality. So the language of Christianity in its essence flipped the power structure, this power structure of empire and domination, and it gave strength to the commoner. It took power away from the ruling class and placed it in the hands of the commoner. Jesus said things like, blessed are the meek, blessed are the poor. I mean, who ever thought that was true prior to Jesus? And these words essentially defied the prevailing religious doctrines of the day and created headaches for the ruling dominant class that needed to control the way people thought and the way they expressed themselves. So here's the big question today. What if words, and especially the words framed by culture, because every culture is so different, aren't the exclusive domain in which God is speaking. 
Blasphemy? <laughs> Hold up. Is it possible that God is speaking through music? I call them the unredeemed prophets. And I'm not talking about what we term Christian music, which is a contradiction in terms itself. But for, that's for another conversation. Let's talk purely about those who sing what we would call secular music. I call those people unredeemed prophets because there are so many songs, secular songs, that have such a powerful message because the person who wrote the song or who's singing the song had such an encounter that they didn't attribute to God, they didn't understand was a supernatural encounter with the divine. But because of that encounter, it inspired a song. Now, before you start to argue and say, no, um, secular songs don't have godly meaning, may I remind you that many churches that consider themselves modern and progressive, progressive in the sense that they're keeping up with the times and able to speak in the language of culture, have different series during the year, series that they call at the movies or some music series using secular songs and secular movies. And out of those secular songs and movies, they extract spiritual principles that they teach the church. This is true. They recognize that God speaks through the unredeemed prophet, just as he did through Abram. May I remind you that Abram was not a Christian when God called him. His name was Abram. It wasn't even Abraham. He was a worshiper of the moon god. But think about it. Without the call to Abram, an idolater, and his obedience to that call, to a voice from God that he didn't recognize because it wasn't the God that he worshipped, Without that obedience, there is no Israel. In case you're not up on the spiritual meaning of that, Abram is the father, or Abraham as he became, is the father of Isaac. And Isaac is the father of Jacob, who is the father of the 12 sons for whom the nation of Israel is named. So what if God is speaking through nature? Think about sunrises and sunsets the kaleidoscope of colors in the color palette of sunrises and sunsets. I mean, every time we talk about going somewhere new, we talk about watching a sunrise or a sunset. I was just recently in Ellaville, Georgia, and we got up really early in the morning to walk a distance so that we could just watch the sunrise. There's something beautiful about God as an artist, that as he paints the skies with such brilliant color, and it speaks to the hearts of so many. What about different wild animals? Animals that don't, that, that, that don't have a relationship with God, that don't have a spirit like humans do, or a soul like men's souls, uh, mind, will, and emotions. Um, animals like peacocks, in the splendor of their beauty, and the way the males only have this be these beautiful uh, wings in their, or feathers in their tails that they spread and display a dance to attract females. What about giraffes with necks that are longer than most of us are tall? And they are so powerful that they are able to use those necks in battle against one another when they're fighting for females. What about lions and elephants? I mean, an elephant trunk is strong enough to uproot a tree, its nose through which it breathes. I mean, if you think for a moment of the splendor of creation, you'll understand that God speaks through nature. But human busyness 
is something that we relish because it means we don't have to slow down and look in the mirror. We don't have to look in the mirror of the scriptures and evaluate our lives. So far too often, we walk around with our eyes wide shut and miss the message that God is speaking through nature. But what if it's not just music and nature? What if God is speaking through the human experience, people's personal journeys? Just a few days ago, I was privileged to be at the launch of an organization called C-Suite for Christ in Orlando, of which I serve as the spiritual advisor. Um, A young lady gave her testimony there. She works at Facebook. I don't know how high up she is, but what she does would suggest that she's pretty well-placed because she talked about her team that works for her and all of that. Well, she shared her testimony. She was celebrating her first year anniversary in Christ. I, I don't have time on this podcast to share her entire testimony. I will tell you this one part of it that blew my mind. She shared how there were so many miraculous things that God seemed to be doing in her life as he was drawing her close to him. And she was so unsure because she was a complete, she was so uh, caught up in new age philosophies, spiritism, witchcraft, all of that. And so as she began to slowly, as God began to slowly chip away at her heart, she finally said, look, I work in technology, God. If this is real, if Jesus is real, Speak to me through technology. She said that she got a text message on her phone from a guy named Jesus. Jesus is the Spanish pronunciation of the word Jesus. And she explained to us that Jesus was uh, an auto mechanic that had fixed her car in New Jersey about 10 years ago and that she had put his name and number in her phone just in case she ever needed him again. And this was 10 years previous. And she said she had lived in New York at the time, but she had moved from New York so many years uh, ago. She lives here in Orlando now. And the text message from Jesus simply said, hey, I'm in New York, just checking up on you. (laughs) And she said, she immediately replied to him saying, hey, um." Who is this? How did you get my number? And she knew that she would never get a reply back from him, which she didn't. And she says she's convinced that that was Jesus. Isn't that fascinating? Using the name, this very name, Jesus, that she had put into her phone 10 years previously and sent her a text message to confirm her fleece of saying, if this is really you, speak to me through technology. There are myriad stories like that, if we just care to pay attention and listen, of people who have had supernatural encounters like that. So I'm telling you that God speaks through music, through the unredeemed prophets, through nature, through sunrises and sunsets and the the brilliance of the animals. He speaks through the human experience. And if the truth be told, far too many of us don't actually believe the words we claim to believe that we read. And that is evidenced by the lives that we live. Interestingly enough, the scriptures back that up succinctly because Jesus, speaking to his disciples, declares, here's a simple rule of thumb, a simple rule of thumb guide for behavior. This is taken from Matthew 7, verses 12 through 16 in the message translation. Ask yourself what you want people to do for you. Then grab the initiative and do it for them. Add up God's law and prophets, and that is what you get. Too many of us put ourselves first over people. We don't 
ask ourselves what we want and then do it for others. It goes on to say, don't look for shortcuts to God. The market is flooded with surefire, easygoing formulas for a successful life that can be practiced in your spare time. Don't fall for that stuff, even though crowds of people do. The way to life, to God, is vigorous and requires total attention. Be wary of false preachers who smile a lot, dripping with practiced sincerity. Chances are they are out to rip you off some way or other. Don't be impressed with charisma. Look for character. Who preachers are is the main thing, not what they say. A genuine leader will never exploit your emotions or your pocketbook. These diseased trees with their bad apples are going to be chopped down and burned. Let's focus on verse 14 for a second. I'll read it from the NLT. But the gateway to life is very narrow, and the road is difficult, and only a few ever find it. What are we saying here? We're saying that if we want to truly embrace the kingdom of God, the message of the gospel, the message of Christ, it's a lot harder than just simply reading some words or taking some words that have been handed down from culture and thinking that that's all there is to it. So you might ask, why isn't this taught in more assemblies that gather in the name of Christ, if that's true? Well, I can't speak as an authority on every assembly, but I can say for the majority that I've been involved with, there's a vested interest to preserve the status quo, especially if sharing the truth is done at the expense of losing members and resources. No assembly wants that. They don't want to lose members and resources. So maybe we'll just slip that truth to the side surreptitiously and speak about other things. I've said ad nauseum that the problem with subverting the truth, though, is that it becomes impossible to establish a kingdom of God baseline. So what we begin to do is we casually throw around phrases as Christian leaders, like, trust your leaders because they are anointed by God to teach you and lead you. Don't question God or the scriptures, forgetting, of course, or maybe willfully ignoring the fact that God is big enough for our questions and our doubts. See, far too many of us are afraid to acknowledge these facts because we fear the loss of relational equity. We fear being ostracized and abandoned to the wilderness. But ultimately, we must be willing to embrace the wilderness because that's where we deconstruct our faith journey, outside of the comfort and acceptance of mainstream religion in order to embrace the totality of the gospel and not just the words we've been taught to embrace as truth. But... And that's a big but, and I don't mean it the American way. If you choose the discomfort of the wilderness, the gospel will be more alive to you than it has ever been as you find God in the places that he's least searched for. My word alone isn't what says it. There are a lot of people like you and I out in the wilderness. Brene Brown, in her book Braving the Wilderness, puts it like this in the chapter titled Strong Back, Soft Front, Wild Heart. The wilderness is where all the creatives and prophets and system buckers and risk takers have always lived, and it is stunningly vibrant. The walk out there is hard, but the authenticity out there is life. Wow, she must have read Matthew 7.14. I won't sugarcoat this. Standing on the precipice of the wilderness is bone-chilling, because belonging is so primal, so necessary, the threat of losing your tribe or going alone feels so terrifying as to keep most of us distanced from the wilderness our whole lives. 
Human approval is one of our most treasured idols, and the offering we must lay at its hungry feet is keeping others comfortable. So I'd close this week by asking, are you hungry for more of God? If so, welcome to the wilderness. See you next week. Thanks for joining us on the Open Spaces podcast. If you enjoyed it, then please like it and share it with your friends. We'd really love to connect with you. And you can find us on Instagram and Facebook at the Open Spaces podcast. Mm -hmm.